This Washington Post Live podcast is sponsored by Siemens. You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the Post's newsroom to life on stage. Senator Thomas Carper and Julia Hamm, the president and CEO of Smart Electric Power Alliance, joined the Post to discuss the future of America's power grid and how to safely transform the country's infrastructure. Let's listen. Good afternoon. I'm Jonathan Capehart, opinion writer for The Washington Post. Welcome to Washington Post Live. Today, we're looking at America's infrastructure needs and the safest and most economical ways we can meet those needs. Now, we were hoping to talk with Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg, but official business has called him away. But he will be here tomorrow at 11 a.m. Eastern. So please tune in for that. In a moment, we will talk with Delaware Senator Tom Carper, chairman of the Senate Committee on Environment and Public Works. But first, we begin our conversation with an influential voice in the discussion about clean energy. Julia Hamm is president and CEO of the nonprofit organization Smart Electric Power Alliance. Ms. Hamm, welcome to Washington Post Live. Thank you so much for having me. Great to meet you, Jonathan. Likewise. So let's dive right on into it. What are the biggest challenges involved in the transition to a clean, modern energy future? There are four. I'm sorry, I keep losing my earpiece here. There are four pieces in particular that I would like to to, to highlight. The first is that we really need uh, regulatory and utility business model innovation in the electricity sector. Uh, our regulatory structures and utility business models were designed a century ago and really aren't up to speed and effective at embracing new technologies. I'm just gonna take this out until I need to hear you. Uh, <laughs> and so we need to ensure that utility and regulatory incentives are aligned to ensure that we can focus on carbon reduction and other public policy objectives. The second challenge that I'd like to highlight is the need to change how we plan and operate the grid. Our grid, again, was designed more than 100 years ago. It was really designed for a generation of electricity from large central station power plants that was then delivered directly to customers, period, end of story. Today, we have so many more technologies available to us. We have rooftop solar, we have battery storage, we have electric vehicles, we have smart thermostats. We have all these new technologies that are available both to utilities and customers to deploy. And we really need to ensure that the grid is modernized, that we have an intelligent grid that can take advantage of all of these new technologies and optimize their value, not only for individual consumers, but also for the system as a whole. The third challenge is around the need to electrify so many things in our economy. And we often talk about, and fortunately the secretary, as you said, can't join us today, but often we talk about transportation electrification and electric vehicles, and that is a huge component, right? As the grid gets cleaner and cleaner and more carbon-free, we wanna be able to take advantage of that carbon-free electricity and charge our vehicles. But increasingly, we also need to focus on electrifying the building sector as well as our industrial sector. And those are really challenging things to do for the industry. The fourth and final challenge that I want to highlight is the need to put low-income people and disadvantaged communities at the center of this conversation about the transition to a clean and modern grid. We have to make sure that low-income customers continue to have affordable electricity and that they can directly benefit from clean energy. 
you know, obviously, once we get to a place where the grid is carbon free, that's still a ways down the road, but eventually everybody will have access to that and that'll be fantastic. But in the meantime, we need to make sure that low income people have access to clean energy as well. And so as you put your earpiece back in, <laughs> you took your earpiece out and then I understood why I was having a hard time seeing the screen. I'm wearing the wrong glasses. So we're both <laughs> we're, we're both sort of operating at a deficit right now. I want to go back to the the the, the second challenge that that you mentioned, and that had to do with the the um, the grid, modernizing the grid. And I'm just wondering, did, what happened in Texas in February? Um, massive power outage, exposing the vulnerabilities of Texas's power grid. Is that sort of exhibit A? to what you're talking about. And I know Texas is a special case because Texas is Texas and it has its own power grid. But is Texas sort of an example of what you're talking about here? Well, Texas is unique. And I would say that Texas is an example of the need to change how we plan the grid, uh, not necessarily um, all of the components that I talked about. But some of the challenges in Texas related to the fact that when they went about planning uh, you know, the, the, what generation resources they need for Texas, part of what they did was look at historical weather data. And we need to change that going forward. As we're planning our the future needs of our electricity sector, we have to recognize that we have more frequent and more severe weather events and that we can't base our decisions based on past weather data. Another piece of the planning, and, and so as part of that for Texas, they had made decisions to uh, not invest in winterizing their generation and transmission on both the electricity and natural gas side of things. So that was a big piece of, of the challenge in Texas. Uh, another piece of it is really around uh, uh, modeling and, and really thinking about, again, it gets back to taking into account that the weather, the weather patterns of the past are not going to be the weather and patterns mm -hmm. of the future. And so, for example, many states in the more northern part of the U.S. that are used to these extreme cold temperatures, when they do their modeling, they assume that there is going to be a certain number of hours, days in which certain generating resources are not going to be available as a result of weather. Uh, and Texas did not plan in or anticipate that they were going to have that type of situation where they were not going to have generation available. Mm -hmm. So you believe, um, to pivot away from Texas, you, you believe that the most effective way to secure America's power grid is for a, quote, smart transition. What does that mean? Well, yeah, that, that's very important to us. When we say a smart transition, we mean that we are thoughtful, intentional, and that we are really balancing all of our objectives. We need policymakers and decision makers to understand the trade-offs of every decision, right? We have always, within the electricity system, focused on safe, affordable, and reliable, and those continue to be absolutely critical. But now we're adding in clean and equitable. And with every decision, there are trade-offs amongst those five objectives. And so for us, a smart transition is one in which, again, we're very thoughtful about each of those safe, affordable, reliable, clean, and equitable, and making sure that we are not making decisions that are going to have, or we're minimizing the number of unintended consequences. Um, as I said before, we're going to hear from Chairman Carper today and Secretary Buttigieg tomorrow 
about their infrastructure priorities, you have said we need greater emphasis on investing in the distribution of energy sources. I think you touched on, on some of this in your, your first answer, but talk more about that. Yeah, absolutely. So when we when we look at Bi the Biden administration's infrastructure plans, there is a phenomenal focus on investing in the transmission system, which is absolutely critical to get to carbon free. We need to be able to move clean energy, carbon free energy sources around different parts of the country. And there's also a huge focus on investing in EV infrastructure, making sure that we have the charging stations necessary for an electrified uh, transportation sector. The third piece where we'd like to see a bit more focus is on making sure we have continued investment in the distribution system. And the reason for that is that as we have all of these electric vehicles coming onto the system, as we have more distributed solar, more storage, all of these new technologies coming onto the system, we need to make sure that the distribution system has the necessary capability for not only two-way power flow, but really two-way communications and, and the ability to effectively um, maximize the benefit from all of these different new things that are being integrated into the distribution system. So there is, there's just a lot of work to be done. The grid has been getting smarter. You know, back in the Obama days, we had significant federal investment to help deploy smart meters, but we still don't have 100% smart meter rollout in the U.S. There are other technologies that are needed on the distribution system to make sure that there is visibility for the grid operators to understand what all of these distributed technologies are doing in order to ensure that we can always have an op, uh, have a balance, the right balance of supply and demand, which is what ultimately ensures we have that reliability we need. Now, just a second ago, you used the acronym EV, and I am so hip that I actually know what you're talking about, electric, <laughs> electric vehicles, and you drive an electric vehicle. How important a role will they play in lowering our carbon footprint? And to add to that, what do you say, what's your sales pitch to people to go from their um, gas, gas guzzling vehicle to, an, to EV? Yes, so to your first question, EVs are a critical part of this transition. The transportation sector, I apologize, I don't know the exact number off the top of my head, but I believe it's in the, the 20 to 25% um, contribution to carbon in our society. So switching from uh, the traditional way of powering our vehicles to powering them through clean electricity will make a big difference in carbon reduction. In terms of what do I tell people, I, I am not a car person. I have never been a car person. <laughs> I love my EV. And, and yet, do I love that it's that it's clean and it's good for the environment? Yes, but that's not that's not why I love it. It is just an amazing car to drive. It is it's just such a, a positive experience. And and that's why, you know, I really encourage people, you know, get out there and go test drive one, right? Just go to a dealership, test drive an EV and see what you think. Because most people, when they do that, are like, oh my gosh, yeah, my next car has to be an EV. So, so you're not a car person, but now you're a car person. When you got into your EV, what was the one thing that made you go, oh my God, this, this is going to be my ride? Is it, was oh. it the door handles? Was it the, <laughs> was it the board, the pickup <laughs> no, on acceleration? 
Yeah, all the technology stuff is cool, but it really is the way it drives. It's just such a smooth, quiet ride. And and I was my my husband will be the first one to tell you I hate speed. But I will, t you know, back in the days when I had to commute to work, there was always one spot where it was like, okay, I'm hitting that accelerator and I'm going to fly because I've had this little straightaway. So <laughs> the pickup, I mean, the acceleration is is quite amazing. And even for somebody who doesn't love cars and doesn't like speed, it, I really, as you could tell, I, I actually really enjoy that experience. No, I was going to say, I can see like, you're beaming about, about this car. <laughs> you might make me change my mind. Um, on if I if I get a if I get another car, but uh, one more thing on on um, cars uh, EVs. How plentiful are the charging stations? I mean, is that is that a concern that you're hearing from people who are worried about making the transition from gas to electric? That they'll get out on the road and then find that they're that they're out of juice and and can't get recharged. People really need to think about their own lifestyle and you know what is it that you use your vehicle for, right? And, and I think one important thing to understand is that for those of us who do already own EVs, 90 some percent of charging happens at home. So you know, you get home, you plug it in, it charges overnight, you know, it charges whenever you plug it in at your house. So, so most of the time you're charging at home. So the question only becomes when you have, you know, if you're taking a long trip, right, then then that becomes a question of is there enough uh, public charging infrastructure? And it is growing every day. I mean, I can tell you within my community, within, you know, uh, I could actually walk to probably five different public EV charging stations from where, from where my home is today. And it, you know, are we there yet in the in the entirety of the country? No, but we're getting there. There is massive EV infrastructure being built out. Increasingly, we're seeing uh, charging stations be being put in at convenience stores, so at the Wawas and 7-Elevens of the world. And so, so we're getting there. Are we all the way mm -hmm. there yet? No, but for most people, 90 plus percent of the driving you do is local. And you're going to be charging at home, and and so it's really not going to be an issue. And and maybe in the in the near term, you need to be thoughtful if you're taking a long trip to make sure you're planning out your trip so that you make sure you have charging stations along the way. But there's lots of fantastic apps and online tools to let you know where those charging mm -hmm. stations are, that make it really easy to plan that out in advance. Julia Ham, thank you for coming to this episode of Car Talk. <laughs> Julia Ham, thank when you very much. When I get that much. invitation, I will uh, credit you for it. <laughs> thank, <laughs> thank you, you so for much. having me. Washington Post Live. Our program will continue in a moment. The following segment was produced and paid for by a Washington Post Live event sponsor. The Washington Post newsroom was not involved in the production of this content. Hello, everyone. My name is John DeBoer, and I work for Siemens, heading up the e-mobility business in North America. And joining me today is Drew Cullen, Senior Vice President of Fuels and Facility Services at Penske Transportation Solutions. Welcome, Drew. Thank you, John. Happy to be here. Man, I am excited by this discussion today. I think in the market, there's a lot of conversation around Tesla and Leafs, but we're here to talk about the other half of the equation. Because when we really talk about decarbonizing transport, it means electrifying the movement of both people and goods. And I can't imagine a stronger company to speak about on that subject than Penske. So really to get us kicked off here, 
you know, Penske has really been driving innovation in the EV fleet, including the expansion of heavy-duty EV charging networks. Can you tell us a little bit more about the program? Yeah, I, I'd love to, John. And, and thank you again for having Penske Transportation Solutions part of this. Um, so, so just so you know, we, we've been actually maintaining battery electric vehicles in our fleet for over a decade now. Um, but, but our commercial heavy-duty and medium-duty uh, battery electric uh, fleet really started to take off in about June of 2018. And that's when Daimler Trucks North America asked us to get involved with their Freightliner electric innovation fleet. Our portion of that was to help them deploy medium duty and heavy duty uh, class eight and, and class six and seven battery electric trucks to customers in the Southern California market, maintain those vehicles, as well as install the supporting charging infrastructure. So throughout 2019, we installed DC fast charging stations at six of our locations in Southern California. And those stations range from, you know, a small 50 kilowatt single charging position system that we installed in Temecula, all the way up to the largest system in Ontario that John, you and your team helped us out with uh, the design and installation of, which includes three 150 kilowatt uh, charging cabinets, six charging positions, plus an 800 kilowatt battery storage system. And, you know, as we sort of look back on those efforts, we, we were really able to, to build a network of DC fast charging stations to support our customers uh, and, and our partners as we look to deploy even more uh, electric vehicles. Drew, that's incredible. And when I reflect uh, as Siemens on the 100,000 charging stations that we've put out into over 35 countries, you know, there's some things that you did there in 2018, focusing on solutions like the 150 kilowatt chargers and adding battery storage that really capture the full picture. In Siemens, we refer to that as looking at it from a plug to grid concept. And you were one of the earliest in the industry and that's an impressive start. I was wondering if you could share a little bit more with the audience, your needs when building out EV infrastructure. Yeah, you know, John, it's it's kind of funny, right? With if you if you compare where we were at uh, back in 2019 with sort of where we're at today, today, right? You're you're looking at the fleet, right? You're looking at you know when, when's the downtime, what's the utilization, what's the average daily miles, and you're trying to create this balance between cost effectiveness and you know efficiency with your charging system, as you and Siemens well know. Well, we didn't know any of that. So we, we really settled on three primary criteria because our team likes to keep things simple. And those included getting the fastest yet most reliable chargers that we could get our hands on because we wanted to give our customers flexibility um, because we didn't know how they were gonna operate the vehicles or what their charging needs were going to be. Plus we wanted to make sure we, we limited the amount of downtime that they may have had. And then the third item was really we needed a network, a, a management system that we could control the chargers based off of the different operational characteristics that we were going to experience with, uh, with our customers. Um, you know, we, we didn't have a lot of time 
to do the installation because Daimler was making the trucks and they were coming. So we were lucky to find locations that had the requisite power and we didn't have to work with the utility to, to bring, us, bring us that power. Uh, we already had it at our sites, uh, but we did develop that relationship with the, with the utility and, and that was absolutely key in us getting that charging infrastructure in place in time for the arrival of the trucks. And Drew, that's another best practice. You know, when, when we look at it, you know, across the United States, over uh, 500 utilities are now actively engaged in EV programs. And we encourage everyone while you're going through the electrification journey to work with those local utilities. And, you know, again, another strong instance of Penske being proactive and really taking a best practice approach there. Um, you know, I'm, I'm curious, what have you learned so far in this overall process? Well, John, the, the biggest thing that we learned was the, the need and the power of those partnerships, right? I mean, we didn't always get it right the first time. We didn't always get it right the second time either. So, you know, you really had to have that understanding and, and that partnership to be able to get through all that and, you know, everybody pulling the rope in, in the same direction, right? Because for the commercial, you know, truck market, heavy duty, medium duty truck market, this is all new. It's all developing. We are still in learning, testing, tweaking, perfecting mode with these systems. But I truly do believe that it puts us, our partners like Daimler and Siemens in such a great position to not only help our customers, but also the industry as they look to deploy zero emission equipment. Yeah, and Drew, when we reflect on it, I mean, the impacts to air quality, carbon, and the acceleration of a great United States infrastructure are profound when we do this together. You know, and, and I have to admit as Siemens, you know, we have a commitment to be carbon net neutral by 2030. And so we're dependent on companies like Penske and the journey you're going through. And we've enjoyed being your partner. We're excited by the journey ahead together. I want to thank everyone for joining us today, and now I'll hand it back to the Washington Post. And now, back to Washington Post Live. Welcome back. I'm Jonathan Capehart with the Washington Post. If any infrastructure bill passes Congress this year, our next guest will be a major player in it happening. With me again, Chairman Tom Carper, Senator uh, from Delaware, Chairman of the Senate Committee on Environment and Public Works, Chairman Carper, are you with us? Hey, yeah, Jonathan, people are going to say I was on, but I didn't have much to say. <laughs> the best part of this, <laughs> Chairman Carper has been getting an insight into your very dry and hilarious sense of humor. So back to the original <laughs> question that, that I've been trying to ask you, and that is give us some insight into where things are on passage of President Biden's $2.3 trillion American Jobs Plan, also known as the Infrastructure Plan. Yeah, we don't have time to focus on the entire 2.3 trillion. Let me focus on about 300 billion, and that's about what we're looking for, uh, putting maybe a little bit north of 300 billion dollars in a five-year service transportation reauthorization bill out of our committee. We're going to be uh, we're trying to write the final uh, language for the for the bill right now. And uh, as we speak, I think Senator Capito was over at the White House talking to our president about the legislation and hopefully we can find a way to yes for for the president for myself and I think for most of the people in 
uh, on our side of the aisle. And I think a lot of the people in the country want to make sure that we're going to be building. For all, you just had a segment with Billy Ham talked a fair amount about electric vehicles. But uh, if uh, people are going to be able to buy uh, electric vehicles and use electric vehicles, we have to put in charging stations on densely uh, traveled uh, corridors across the country. And that's part of what uh, we want, especially on our side, we want to spend some money out of that $300-plus billion for charging stations and fueling stations throughout uh, the United States. Otherwise, people won't buy them. Uh, so we want people to be able to buy electric vehicles and hydrogen vehicles. Chairman Carper, is it um, would it be enough to your mind to do um, to go along with what Senator Capito of West Virginia is proposing in terms of traditional infrastructure, which is about five hundred, I think five hundred sixty-eight billion dollars? To your mind, would that be enough um, <clears throat> for the president? Should the president accept that? accept that offer if it means doing a lot of the things that you want to do in your committee, but while also shoring up uh, bridges, roads, tunnels, and, and hard infrastructure, if you will. Yeah, yeah, I, I'm not prepared to, to go beyond the, the jurisdiction of our committee. We do water infrastructure, drinking water, wastewater sanitation stuff, and we do service transportation, roads, highways, bridges. The president says calling for spending a fair amount of money in uh, things like broadband, broadband deployment. I'm all for that. He's proposing to spend a fair amount of money in service, uh, a, a railroad service, inner city passenger rail service. I'm all for that. Beyond beyond the transportation piece and the traditional uh, infrastructure, I'm not really prepared to, to say. I, do, I will say this. I, I hope we'll spend at least $300 billion in five-year reauthorization that will include a strong climate title, but also include a ton of money for roads, highways, and bridges because we need them very much. And I think we ought to be able to agree, Democrats and Republicans, on those priorities. Well, uh, well to, that, to that point, and that actually anticipates the next question I was going to ask in this, and that is, what are the possibilities of bipartisan cooperation when it comes to the American Jobs Plan? Are you optimistic? that a bipartisan uh, bill, package, plan can be agreed to? Well, on the first piece that we took up on the Senate that relates to the, the larger bill as the uh, water, wastewater treatment, uh, clean water, drinking water, uh, we passed it 89 to two on the floor. We passed it unanimously in our committee and that's a pretty good start. And my hope is that it'll provide some encouragement for the rest of us in the Senate and the House. Democrats and Republicans to find common ground with respect to roads, highways, and bridges. That's the next piece. And uh, we'll see how the president's conversation goes with Senator Capito today. Um, but I'm, I'm, uh, I'm encouraged that we'll be able to find common ground with respect to roads, highways, bridges. I, we can find common ground with respect to broadband deployment, access to the internet across the country. A lot of places don't have it, they need it. And uh, so I, we should just use what we call regular order, Jonathan. And uh, that's, I think that will serve us well with each step that we take. Uh, that'll be a confidence builder and we'll increase our, our trust and, and confidence. Each side will have some of their priorities met. Then. But we, the, 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 what we not, not, ought to be careful not to do is nothing. Uh, there's plenty to do here. And, but we ought to, if we can't find bipartisan cooperation and consensus on the stuff that I'm, the traditional stuff that I'm talking about, roads, highways, bridges, water, drinking water, um, broadband deployment, inner city passenger if we can't find common ground on those heaven help us on stuff that the president's proposal with respect they'll say human infrastructure a lot of which is very important too you know you just mentioned the the this magic phrase regular order which 
in an earlier interview weeks ago with former Congresswoman Donna Edwards, she said that that was something she always heard when she was in Congress, but no one ever really found it. And when you said that, I was wondering about how serious, how seriously are you and the White House taking Republican offers, Republican overtures, uh, their ideas um, for you know ways to negotiate over the American Jobs Plan? Are those proposals and are those those efforts by Republicans? Are you taking them seriously? Yeah, yeah. I'm a I'm a recovering governor, and I without governor we had a Democratic. Uh, 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 Senate Republican House. I, I learned uh, at a fairly early age to be able to work with people on both sides, and I still do that. When, uh, gosh, several months ago, when Senator Capito and I were getting ready to go to work and beginning to early stages of crafting roads, highways, bridges, and uh, uh, you know, tr service transportation legislation, we literally wrote to every senator, Democrat, Republican, Independent, and the Senate, and said, "Talk to your governors, talk to your state departments of transportation, find out what their other uh, priorities are." Share those with us so that we can begin drafting a bill that reflects the priorities of all 50 states, whether it have to be red states or blue states. That's the way to, to, to I think, to make progress. And you don't get an 89 to 2 vote on uh, uh, water infrastructure legislation uh, every day without having that kind of outreach. And, and when we worked on, we're working on the water uh, 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 infrastructure legislation, Jonathan, we did really a similar approach when we asked for input from everybody. We ended up, Shelly and I took a lot of amendments. We put them in a manager's amendment, passed that unanimously, and at the end of the day, passed the bill by 89, 89 to 2 vote. If we can do that in water, my hope and, and prayers, and I don't think it's a fool's errand, my hope and prayers, we can do that with respect to roads, highways, and bridges. We can do that, then we can build, we can go to the next step. Could be, uh, inter, it could be intercity passenger rail, which I think is really important. We had a lot of a lot of um, uh, people arrive flying airplanes and flying like a couple hundred miles, and they have they have actually have railroads between city pairs. And we are uh, think DC, think Richmond, uh, and we ought to be improving and upgrading our, our intercity passenger rail, which is what the president wants to do. And frankly, there's a lot of bipartisan interest in that, not just on the Northeast corridor, uh, but uh, throughout the country. And before we went into the pandemic uh, 14 months ago, Amtrak for the first time and it's, uh, gosh, 50-year history, paid for its operating costs in the Northeast Quarter, and I think it's, it's, it's capital costs in the Northeast Quarter out of the fare box. First time ever. They're carrying about a quarter, quarter of a million people a week, and uh, and it's, if, and if once we get this pandemic behind us, they'll start doing that again. So I think there's a real appetite for inner-city passenger rail. The president wants to do it. I think there's a lot of interest on both sides. They offer that. And I know when it comes to rail travel, that is something that's important to the president, but it's also important to you, from what I understand, you and then Senator Biden, when you were both in the Senate together between 2001 and 2009, you both rode Amtrak from Washington back and forth, commuted together back and forth to Delaware. Um, so, so your commitment to rail travel is well known. But one more question before we have to go, and that is, and you know, jumping off again, um, the phrase you use, regular order, um, regular starts with the letter R. There's another R word that we, we need to talk about, and that is reconciliation. Do you think that if the president can't come to an agreement with Republicans or um, the Republicans don't seem like they want to um, come to a deal with the president, should the president go try to get this package through by a simple majority vote that would uh, be granted to him under reconciliation yeah. rules. 
Yeah, when when I was leaving the, the White House, uh, I guess it was last Wednesday, Monday night. We walked. They walked me out to my minivan. My like new Chrysler Town and Country minivan. It was over six hundred thousand miles on it. Can you believe that? Can't wait to wow. get myself an electric vehicle. But the last thing he said to me, we talked about regular order, and he's a, he's a an animal of the, of the Senate. He's a product of the Senate. And he and I both believe in regular order to the extent we can make progress on water infrastructure, on service transportation infrastructure, on uh, inner city passenger rail through regular order. That's what we want to do. And to the extent that we ultimately we fail and it's not, imp- it's not possible to make progress by taking, by going by regular order, then we have to look at other options. That would not be my preference, nor would that be his preference. And with that, we will, we will leave it there. Senator Carper of Delaware, chairman of the Senate committee, on environment and public works. Two things. One, thank you for coming to Washington Post Live. And two, thank you very much for your patience with the the technical issues that we had to deal with this afternoon. Well, there, what is it say? When guy closes a uh, door, he opens a window. So he opened a window here for us for a few minutes and we got this job, got this interview. It's a big but you're patient and letting me spend some time with, uh, with you. All right. Take care. All, All right. Best. Thank you. Thank you, Chairman Carper. And as always, as always, thank you for tuning in and thank you for hanging in there and and bearing with us as we dealt with the technical issues. As I mentioned, please tune in tomorrow morning at 11 a.m. Eastern when we will continue this conversation on infrastructure with Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg. You can always uh, head to WashingtonPostLive.com to register and find more information about upcoming programs. Once again, I'm Jonathan Capehart, opinion writer for The Washington Post. Thank you very, very much, especially today, for watching Washington Post Live. Thanks for listening. To hear more interviews from this series and other Washington Post Live programs, visit us at WashingtonPostLive.com.